Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J.FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. In a few minutes, we tackle the state General Assembly elections with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. We also talk with Richard Harwood. He's recently written a book about community engagement that answers the question, how do we bring people together when our society is breaking apart? But first, I sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow to discuss their recent interviews with local leaders. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Charlotte Renee Woods and editor Elliot Robinson. We discuss their recent interviews with the Charlottesville City Manager, Teron Richardson, and Albemarle County Executive Jeff Richardson. First question, do you have to have the last name Richardson to get a leadership job in Central Virginia government? I feel like there's a blazing saddles joke in there somewhere where everyone's <laughs> last name was Johnson. So they have the exact same last name and they have pretty similar roles. But let's start with the city manager. That's Teron Richardson. What does a city manager do? So city manager is in charge of overseeing like the day-to-day workflow and managing the administrative staff throughout the city uh, government offices, but they also collaborate and coordinate with city council. Um, So city council is your legislative body. They have, they're coming up with their ordinances and resolutions, but ultimately the city manager has the final say on, on those things. That said, the city council also with the check and balance of power, they can also have influence on like keeping the city manager or not. And the city manager is not elected. How is the city manager selected? The city council holds a interview process and it's up to them to hire the city manager. If you were looking at this as if the city manager is truly the head of the city, we elect the city council to hire the person who runs the city. Similar to like a sheriff's race, you're hiring your own boss. Teron Richardson, the Charlottesville city manager, has recently started this position. What's his background? So recently he was city manager of DeSoto, Texas. Prior to that, he has experience in Richmond city government working various positions. And in one of his positions when he was in Richmond's government, he was deputy director of of public utilities. And so that kind of oversaw like gas, water, wastewater, and electric. And then during his time in that position, he actually established stormwater management as the city's fifth public utility which is kind of crucial when you think about the health of the James River and the fact that it continues to flow out throughout the rest of the state. He also is a fellow VCU alum, just like me. Turning to Albemarle, you also interviewed their county executive, Jeff Richardson. What does a county executive do? How is it similar or different from the city manager? It is very similar. Same sort of thing where you're overseeing the administrative staff in local government, and then you're also overseeing your board of supervisors. Something that is worth noting, though, between city manager and county executive is that they are both full-time positions, whereas the board and the council are part-time. So if you have an instance where there's something critical happening in the city, your first response might be to 
call the mayor or something happens in the county, they call your supervisor or the board chairperson, but really it's the city manager and the county executive who are there all day long to have a finger on the pulse of what's happening. What are some of the most important issues that affect both the city and the county and may require joint planning? Public transportation and transportation in general, even with something like widening of roads or bridges, along with increasing the amount of affordable housing are definitely issues that have popped up in a lot of local elections. And it's something that the city and the county are both really focused on. Um, It's also an area where the city and county, when they have their joint work sessions or when uh, Jeff and Tehran meet up, can have meaningful discussion on because... Something that Jeff Richardson was telling me was that he especially sees an area of intense collaboration can happen in the urban ring of the county where you'll be walking or driving and maybe not necessarily realize you crossed into the county line from the city line and he sees this like synergy and seamlessness there. And Jeff Richardson gave the example of the regional transit partnership. So Jeff Richardson sees the regional transit partnership as, quote, as big of an opportunity as we have right now to work together. He says it's hard to pinpoint one opportunity, but he thinks that there's a lot of different areas where the city and the county can collaborate. He also sees where climate action can be incorporated into that. As we all know, carpooling or mass public transit helps reduce greenhouse gas emissions because you have less personal occupancy vehicles, POVs, single cars on the road. So that's definitely something that the city and county are talking about right now. How does the county executive see the relationship with the city when it comes to opportunity zones or economic development. Jeff did mention that over the past year, they've been working really hard on uh, Project Enable, which is their economic development plan. And then in terms of opportunity zones, he was talking about how through taking advantage of those, it could produce some revenue that may not otherwise exist. And then that money could go towards other things like public transportation enhancement and affordable housing stock. A lot of people probably don't know the names Teron Richardson and Jeff Richardson. Why is it important for people to be familiar with their city manager or county executive? As Elliot was saying, sometimes you can't go straight to the chair of the board or the mayor because they have their other day jobs. And your county executive and your city manager, they're always there. And Teron Richardson has even stressed his open door policy. Also, these two individuals are out and about a lot, so you can see them around and you can approach them and say, hey, here's something I want to see happen, or can you talk to council or board of supervisors about this, or a specific department within city government or county government? Think of the county executive and the city manager as if they're the president or the governor of the locality, that they're the chief executive a lot of the day-to-day operations uh, go through them, and uh, their roles are very important, but a lot of it just goes sight unseen just because in your head you think that whoever runs the elected body is the person running the show, but they have important roles, but that's not necessarily the case that they're the ones who are truly in charge. Yeah, so you think like General Assembly with governor, Congress with president, council and board, city manager, county executive. Historically, what is the relationship between the city and county leadership been like? It's been an easy thing to say that it was always an antagonistic relationship, but we've seen over the years that things do get done, that they do talk about things and work together, that both of the Richardsons regularly meet, the boards have occasional meetings together, and they up until recently had a organization that included UVA to discuss uh, types of issues, but 
there's a chance that that particular board will vote itself out of existence this week. Ooh. <laughs> Want to elaborate on that? <laughs> that sounds interesting. The regional group between the city and the county and the university is called the Planning and Coordination Council. Oh, yeah. It's comprised of a city manager and county executive, uh, two members of city council and two members of board of supervisors and two University of Virginia administrators. And it focuses on land use decisions and to avoid having it be made by either of the three government bodies that could impact the others in different ways. So it's a way to have like collaboration and complete transparency and understanding as you're making decisions that could impact all three authorities. The fact that the University of Virginia does straddle the city and the county, they do have a responsibility to engage with both local governments. So then that definitely creates these three entities that really have to be communicating with each other. Yeah, it's just interesting because a lot of the other larger universities in the state are in one jurisdiction, so it's easy to just work with that one city or county and not have to deal with how there's different sets of rules depending on what side of the line you're on. One of the things that we love about Charlottesville Tomorrow's reporting is that it helps us better understand and engage with the issues in our community. So every week we end the segment by asking, what's on your calendar this week? The regional voter guide with all of its 44, about 44 candidates. It will be completely finished in the next couple of weeks. Um, more candidates are dropping every couple days. And then there's also some long-form projects that I'll be working on. But the education reporter and I at Charlottesville Tomorrow, we are partnering with VPM, Virginia Public Media, to host a candidate forum at City Space in the evening uh, for city and county school boards. It's easy for parents to pay attention because you got skin in the game with your kids in the system. But sometimes that race can get overlooked, so we're really spotlighting it, city, county, what the issues are, what the incumbents and the newcomers want to do. So if you are interested, definitely drop by and come cheer on your favorite candidates and listen to what maybe people who have you undecided have to say. So that is going to be at City Space on, from 6.30 to 9 p.m. on October 16th. Thank you all so much for coming in. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM network. TEEJ.FM. WTJU and TJ FM are both the service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, as we do each week here on Soundboard, we turn to state news and politics, and we check in with our good friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He's based over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Morning. Let's start things off with state elections. All the state House and Senate races are up for election or re-election in just one month. So there's a couple of interesting on-the-ground stories related to uh, the Democrats running candidates in just about every district, it would seem. Um, let's start over in the Eastern Shore. There's a race that's actually pretty close. Sure. What's what's that one about? Yeah, the drumbeat continues. Yeah, in the 100th district for uh, delegates, um, incumbent uh, Bob Bloxham, a uh, Republican, is being challenged by Phil Hernandez. And uh, Bloxham is a traditional Eastern Shore type, you know, 
kind of uh, salt of the earth, that kind of you know guy, and he's but he's really running um, kind of a, a behind a little bit behind. And, and Hernandez, Hernandez was born in Virginia Beach, kind of a first generation, went to William and Mary Law, and was an aide to Barack Obama. And the district is, is a lot of Accomack County, which is on the other side of the Bay Bridge Tunnel and a little bit of Norfolk as well. So um, it appears that Hernandez has outspent him. And um, so, and on it goes. I mean, this is a, civili- a very familiar song this year about when you especially look at the money. You know, a lot of conservatives and, and pundits complain it's dark money. But anyway, I mean, it's just that the, the shoes turned a little bit. And now the Democrats are being funded as part, partly, again, as a reaction to Trump. Yeah, you know, we usually don't cover horse racing stuff and and fundraising, but it does have an impact for sure. And I think the story here is that the fundraising picture has been quite different than uh, historical trends in Virginia. The Democrats are raising up piles of cash. What's the what's going on? Well, I mean, I just sort of things have reversed. I mean, what happens is that first off, Virginia's definitely a bellwether election. It's an off-year election, and Democrats are very excited about 2020 and very excited about blunting Trump and getting getting him out of office. And uh, in Virginia, of course, this is the the first time in a while that the Dems have a very good chance of bumping off the Republicans for both the Senate and the House of Delegates, and that would give um, you know like a clean sweep. And for years, you've had a real, you know, kind of uh, stymied situation where things like like Medicaid expansion wouldn't go through for years because uh, of the Republicans and the GOP didn't want to do it. So that's one reason. And, and you're just the money's coming in from all kinds of sources from all over. Republicans are saying it's dark money from dark sources outside the state. But, of course, they benefited from people like the Kochs for years. But anyway, be that as it may. Yeah. I mean, what are the state Republicans saying and, and doing about, you know, this whole, like, running with Trump at the top of the ticket, even if he's not running this year. I mean, the the presence of Trump is felt even in like county board races and stuff. Well, it's true. I mean, it's a very kind of hard to deal thing because um, on the one hand, um, the Tea Party movement that maybe helped create Trump, you know, going back, say, to 2010, around then, and they definitely had a huge impact on elections around that time. They've kind of like gone away. I mean, they've morphed into something else. And so um, a lot of the attitude that I find among GOP people is to sort of pretend that Trump doesn't exist. You know, he's not there. Um, and, you could, unless you turn on television. How's that uh, going? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just what they're kind of, um, you know, really ignoring him. And they're trying to dissuade him. Well, he isn't really Virginia issues. And, um, of course, the Democrats saying, look, look what you've got. And so that's why you need us. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Well, moving uh, over toward the Charlottesville area here, looking at some races um, in mm-hmm. this part of the state, there's a piece in Seville Weekly uh, that just ran this week about three candidates in this area. Now, here in Charlottesville, we've got one uh, district that Sally Hudson is, is almost for sure going to get. There's nobody running against her um, that covers Charlottesville City and the near suburbs. But all the other sort of suburbs outside Charlottesville uh, are pretty well gerrymandered to be to be safely Republican-held districts. Right. Um, but there are right. Democrats running. So what's what's this right. about? Well, apparently three of them, um, uh, uh, Jennifer Kitchen, Elizabeth Alcorn, and Tim Hickey, uh, are Democrats running in in mostly severely um, red districts. I mean, um, Alcorn, for example, is facing Rob Bell, who's a a formidable GOP opponent. They created something called Rural Ground Game, where they're all helping each other as best they can and supporting each other's campaigns. Um, 
you know, even though their prospects may not be that good, but at least they'll go down with a good fight. All the, you know, it's really hard to say anything is clearly blue or, or red these days, but, um, you know, those are important races and it all matters. It's all going to see what happens. Well, meanwhile, let's go back over to your neck of the woods over in Chesterfield. Uh, there's a story about Amanda Chase, who's a, a state lawmaker. Um, I, she has a pretty big personality, it would seem. What's going on? Yeah, she is. She's an outsized personality. I mean, Amanda Chase is a very intense social secur- a conservative. Uh, she's a senator. Although I must say, though, she she really did do the law on coal ash. I mean, to, to force uh, Dominion to, to to help dispose of it, she did do that. But she's also known for such things. She's a big concealed carry Second Amendment person. Uh, at one point in the General Assembly, when they were talking about ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment, she brought in her revolver on her hip and said, "This is my little ERA." You know, it's stuff like that. And she also got into a big fight with the uh, Capitol Police over something silly like a parking lot, you know, where to park. And and meanwhile, back at home, there's a conservative sheriff, Ray Leonard, who uh, is regarded as a good sheriff of Chesterfield. And somehow Chase has come after him for running uh, a uh, sanctuary county, which is really not true because there aren't any sanctuaries in Virginia. And so uh, she's really, you know, run her course. And just a few days ago, the county GOP officially kicked her out of the party. This right. is just on the eve of the election, which helped set up her Democratic opponent, Amanda Pohl. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, Chesterfield is one of those suburban battlegrounds in some ways. I don't know how that particular district oh, yeah. is drawn, but is this a competitive race? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It always was. I mean, in fact, Pohl has considerably outraised uh chase, which is interesting. So it's really worth watching. It's, it's a night to stay up for. Yeah, November 5th. Everybody mark your calendars. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, uh, turn. Well, you and I talk about energy policy a lot, and we covered Ralph Northam's executive orders a couple of weeks ago, where he signed off on a couple of things that were sort of these green renewable energy goals for the state. Um, there's an interesting commentary over Virginia Mercury this week about how these renewable energy goals actually could spur job creation if they're combined with sure. some action from the assembly. What's the what's this commentary about? What's the the, the big well, vision? It's always been there. I mean, it's true. They do. And um, they get overshadowed because, you know, remember just a few years ago when you had the American Petroleum Institute and their friends saying in op-eds that you needed, you know, offshore drilling because it would create so many jobs. And these here they are. Well, they've actually done the math themselves in something called Advanced Energy Economy, uh, an industry group representing the renewable industry, says that they're now more clean energy jobs in Virginia than there are either hospital jobs or real estate jobs. For example, 110,000 energy jobs versus 98,000 plus for hospitals and $43,000 for real estate. Um, I mean, it makes sense because um, a lot of this stuff is solar. But just to give you another example and reporting I've done in the past, for example, you think of offshore drilling. Dominion's office um, has announced the largest offshore plan ever a few weeks ago. But when you really think about it, Hampton Roads has a lot going for it. It's got a, a, a really rich metal-bending force. They used to make ships. Now they can make turbines. You know, I, Luckily for Hampton Roads, you don't have any big bridges. So you have really tall structures like turbines can actually pass by without having the problem of being obstructed by a bridge. And then you've got the Navy there. You've got all kinds of things going for it. So that's one area that's definitely going to um, benefit. 
this being from wind. I don't know if that was included in the report. But, um, you know, on and on as it goes, you're finding out more and more that, you know, uh, when you compare the numbers, um, you know, clean is just as many jobs, if not more, than fossil. Yeah. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for checking in. Okay. Take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our final segment, we sit down with Richard Harwood. He's the president and founder of the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation, and he's recently published a book titled Stepping Forward. It's good to be with you, Mary. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. You know, I wrote it because as I travel across the country, what I hear is how polarized people tell me we are, how angry folks are, how divided we have become, how so many of us are hunkered down and retreated, how so many of us have retreated into into small circles of tribes where we've turned away and sometimes turned our back on one another. And so I wrote the book because I wanted to say, first of all, we don't have to accept what's happening in the country. And second, that there is a better way forward, a way that can enable us um, to step forward and bring out the best in ourselves and the best of ourselves. And that I believe we can do better and be better. And at the core, of this is uh really a sense that I think one of the critical issues we need to address in our country today is the need to restore our belief in ourselves and in one another that we can actually come together and get things done. What are you hoping people will learn when they read your book? Well, I can tell you what people have been telling me as they've been reading it, which is they gain a sense of possibility that there is a better way forward, that there are practical steps that we can actually take that, you know, my book is not like so many books. It's not a utopian vision about America or the, the city on the hill. It it actually is really rooted in 30 years of experience that I've had working with people in communities all across the country and now around the world. And the need for us to face up to the realities that confront us and that there are practical, positive ways, productive ways that we can engage with one another begin to better understand one another, and importantly, begin to take action to create a more prosperous, more inclusive, more hopeful society for everyone. So you mentioned just now that uh, a lot of what's in the book is based on your experience working with a lot of different communities all across the country. Could you read a little bit from one of the sections where you describe those experiences? Sure. I was going to say, unfortunately, because it was an unfortunate experience. I think all your listeners will remember the massacre in Newtown where 20 first graders and six adults were were massacred. They were gunned down by a 20-year-old named Adam Lanza. I was asked to come into the community to help the community figure out what to do with the school building. But what I soon realized that this was about much more than a school building. It was about whether or not a community could pivot from trauma and despair to healing and hope. And as I was leading the process of 20, a 28-member task force, um, it was emotional, as you can imagine. It was hard. It was harrowing. There were 
families of victims there. There were teachers there. There were former students there all talking about what happened. And so I thought I'd just read you the last three paragraphs of one of the chapters where I talk about Newtown and A, what it was like for me and B, how we move forward. So here we go. Many times I stood in the middle of the room leading these sessions in front of townspeople and a battery of media fighting back my own tears. There are few words to comfort those who experience such devastating loss. The pain never goes away. At the same time, something quite remarkable unfolded in the aftermath of Newtown's tragedy. There, in the face of unimaginable circumstances, when so many parts of the process and so many people could have splintered apart, the community worked to hold itself together. Now, amid the noise and confusion enveloping the nation, it's our turn to build our strength and resilience. We must rediscover what we share in common and how we can build upon it. Thank you so much. Yeah. You also started the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation. What's your mission through mm-hmm. that organization? Yeah, you know, I started there when I was 27. So a number of years ago, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. And, and the mission really is to equip individuals, organizations, and communities with the uh, the ideas and the tools to bridge divides, to create a a culture of shared responsibility within communities, and to engender a sense of authentic hope in people's lives. And and this work now has spread, I think I mentioned, has now spread to all 50 states and has been pulled into about 40 countries. And it seems to me that the work is more needed now than than when I started this some 30 years ago. How are the ideas and the mission of the Harwood Institute relevant to a community like Charlottesville? Well, as as you and your listeners know better than I do, in 2017, Charlottesville experienced the, the supremacy march that really divided the community. Lives were lost and, and injured. It racked the community and the community, like many communities that I work with, is still sorting through that. I think there are issues in places like Charlottesville, including Charlottesville, that are wrestling with issues of gentrification and housing shortages um, to ensure that all people can live and prosper and be included in the community. There are issues of economic and educational inequities in Charlottesville and in other communities. I just came from back from South Carolina uh, last week, where we were talking about these issues, and I think, I think we face a fundamental choice in the country. We can decide to remain divided and polarized, and pointing fingers at one another, and casting aspersions at one another, and trying to divvy up um, what we have and just protect our own and what we've got, or we can decide to come together and begin to talk about what it is that we want to create together in a practical sense in our communities and how we can come together and have those conversations and begin to become doers again, co-creators in our community, which is what I talk a lot about in the book about how to do. And, you know, it's interesting, notwithstanding the division and acrimony and polarization that we hear the media talk so much about and see in so many of our communities, What I find when I go to communities is that there is a deep yearning among people 
to step back into community life, to be part of something larger than themselves, to be a contributor to creating something better, not just for themselves, but for all of us. And I think communities like Charlottesville need to show the way forward in how we do that. We need more communities to step forward. We need more communities to take action. And we need more communities to create a more hopeful, inclusive society. And we need places like Charlottesville to help us do that. Is there anything else that you'd want listeners of the podcast to know? Well, obviously, I hope folks will will buy the book, but not because I'm trying to sell books, but because what I know from traveling the country is that people are looking for a better way forward. And I don't believe in any way that I have all the answers. But I think based on 30 years of experience, there's some good ideas and insights and practical ways um, in the book that can help people feel a greater sense of possibility and hope that we actually can move together, can move forward together. And that was my purpose in writing the book. Thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M.